0: You're listening to episode 63 of Darker Days Radio. Welcome, World of Darkness fans, to another episode of Darker Days Radio. I am one of your hosts, Adrian, and joining me on the mics tonight are... Hi, this is Beckett for Darker Days Radio.
1: And this is Mark. Good to be back, folks.
0: Welcome aboard to the episode and I'm looking forward to the discussion tonight where we're going to cover things like the Midnight Circus sourcebook and we're also going to be taking a look in the secret frequency at cargo cults and how you might use those in your game. But before we start off, I'm sure that we've all been up to exciting things gaming-wise. So I thought that I'd start with you, Beckett. What have you been up to?
2: Um, honestly, for that's the last month and a half, uh, um, absolutely nothing. <laughs> nothing game-related at all. Uh, my group's been on hold just because of you know work. All until last night where we had our first game. With most of the people being back, there was a Pathfinder Society game. We ran something called, it's a series called The Black Rose Museum. Which basically the players go into this haunted museum and mess around, and or as is more true the case, get messed around with. And it was fun. It was interesting. A couple new, brand new players. A little glimmer of hope that one of them might actually run World of Darkness for me.
0: Oh, very cool.
2: <laughs> that will be. Uh, I don't. I may have mentioned this before. I've actually never played World of Darkness. I've always run it. I'm actually very excited about that. And then of That's course. A real treat. <laughs> of course I'll have to wait at least another month because I'm about to be gone for work as well. So now that I've got that little glimmer of hope, I have the temptation of having to wait for it to actually maybe become true. <laughs> That's something to look forward to.
1: Are you are you running this at a at a local gaming store with it being Pathfinder Society?
2: Sometimes we do. Sometimes I do it at my house because right. we we have two kids and sometimes my, my wife likes to jump in as well. If it's Border oh, Darkness, she she's always in. Yeah. Sometimes she just likes to she's not really a fan of Fantasy and Pathfinder Society or or Dungeons and Dragons, but sometimes she just likes to, you know, jump into something to do. And, no, Pathfinder
1: uh, can be quite can be quite a handful as a system. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, with Pathfinder Society specifically, kind of the way it's it's designed is each each game, each scenario is meant to be played in a three to six hour block, just depending on the group. And it's kind of like a single, you know, it's got a beginning, middle and end, a conclusion. So the entire session is one adventure that you know that is completed and they're not really attached to each other at all sometimes there's some some bleed over like i mentioned the black rose museum there's actually five of them that all take place in the same location with reoccurring npcs but they're not you don't have to have played any of the previous ones to jump into it but it's kind of cool if you have it it is it is Um, nice especially just because so many different nightmarish kind of outbreaks happen in that yeah, location. Yeah.
1: I've, I've run a fair bit of, part, fair bit of Pathfinder, uh, but I haven't actually touched it for a year or two. It's just been Old oh, yeah? uh, World of Darkness recently. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's good fun.
0: Yeah.
2: I wish it was Old World of Darkness. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you, you're basically saying you're playing Pathfinder, but you're thinking about the Old World of Darkness.
2: I am. I am. One day. The group that a couple, about two months ago, we'd started out playing Vampire the Masquerade, most of them are Back now, so we can actually jump back into that soon and uh, I know a couple of people are really looking forward to it. They really enjoyed what what happened so far, and they definitely wanted to continue kind of see how it plays out.
1: you posted on the on the forums a little while ago that you had a, an introductory session of vampire the Masquerade. Is this for yes. that same group, or is this uh something something else something else?
2: Yeah, it's the same group. It's just we haven't been about a place since that original one. Yeah. And it's it's something I just kinda made up. It's both an introduction to the world of darkness and also to Vampire the Masquerade. So the idea is kind of it's similar to uh a couple of the early published adventures, like Ash to Ash and um another one I just picked up. Wasn't actually White Wolf. It was like a third party published book for Vampire the Masquerade called uh Blood Nativity, that's what it is. Oh right. And wow. Cool. And in both cases, it's like, okay, you wake up and you're a vampire. There's a little bit beforehand, but the idea is that you kind of explore the world and also being, you know, a vampire. And you can easily, you know, switch this to, uh, you know, you wake up and all of a sudden you're, you're an awakened mage or a changeling or yeah. you died last night now you're a race. And yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it's <laughs> kind of the whole point is to kind of explore the world as you go and kind of learn. So everything's kind of like, it's got like a, a slight fog of war. And as you play, you kind of expand, you know, what your characters know and can perceive around you. Cool.
0: With that Blood Nativity, it was produced under a special license with
2: Atlas Games. Mm-hmm. mm I, Bit strange on that. Yeah, I wasn't clear. Was that actually... I know it wasn't published by White Wolf or Onyx Path now, but I wasn't sure if that was, like, an official adventure or if it was something else somebody wrote that was just that well done or...
0: I don't know the actual history behind it, because just in the front cover of the book, it actually just says, produced under special license by Atlas Games. And the the product code is actually an AG product code, rather than a WW. So if you look at the complete list, there's a PDF that White Wolf produced, nearing the end of the run of World of Darkness, It acts as a complete checklist or, if you're like me, a shopping list of all of of the old World of Darkness books. And Blood Nativity does not show up on that list.
2: Oh, wow. I remember some some years back, it was still White Wolf days, and it was still when they were publishing, like the second edition and revised era. They had a checklist. And I remember seeing that. And it was like the one book I had never, ever seen before. And I, I kept looking. This is, you know... This was back when, before Google and Internet was really not very uh, searchable. So I kept trying to find a reference to this book, and I could never find it. And then about three months ago, I noticed it popped up on DriveThruRPG. Oh, and, mm, okay. So, so I, just, I picked it up, and it was literally the first time I've ever actually seen this book. <laughs>
0: well, it was, it was published in 1991, so we're talking very early in the run. Wow. Okay,
1: okay. wow. Right. So that's pre wearable human Yep. <laughs> very much
2: so. It's in it's, print, is it? I don't know if it's in print, because I got the PDF. I want to okay. say that because, as far as I know, it just, just kind of appeared. Mm. I want to say they would probably put it on print-on-demand, but it's only, okay. like, 20 or 30 pages or so? Yeah, I'll
0: give that a look. Um, I'm taking a look at my copy here. It's 16 pages.
2: Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. And it's got that really, really old school art. Mm. Kind mm. of the defining, you know, defining original World of Darkness art, which I liked. I'm, I don't mean that as a bad thing. I just, it's, it's pretty distinct. All right. All right. The cover itself is black and white.
0: Yes, and features the Sunset Club. <laughs> oh, lovely. <laughs> but don't judge it by that. <laughs> so what about yourself, Mark? What have you been up to?
1: Surprisingly, mage and more mage and also a little bit of mage. <laughs> um, we've had trouble over the last couple of years with my tabletop group here getting scheduling. So I was able to uh, um, rally my old uh, face-to-face group from uh, back when I lived in, in the Netherlands. And we're all now are scattered across the world, L.A., Tel Aviv, and one of the guys in England, other guys in Geneva. But through the magic of Skype and more recently uh, Google Video Hangouts, we've resurrected our old mage game from uh, from the late 90s, early 2000s, and that's been going strong now for four years, entirely online. The chronicle itself is going to be 20 years old this year. Um, wow. We started actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, there's been a few you know few hiatuses uh, down 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 the line, but um, we've got a great momentum going now. The, the chronicle started actually on the 50th anniversary of the Hiroshima bombing, and there was all these kind of you know tie-ins with the angel of the atomic fire and stuff. So I've got these. Delusional ideas about trying to wrap up the current arc on what would be the 70th anniversary later this year. Um, so I'm kind of driving the players hard, cracking the whip, and you know, we have to get another session in this month or we're not going to meet the deadline. <laughs> um, so, you know. And they've very selfishly gone away and had small children and stuff. So uh, that's, you know, that's making it harder than usual. But <laughs> so the kids going, well, I know, you know, priorities. <laughs> A minor of the age where I can say, don't come in the room for the next six hours, but uh, you know, their little ones need feeding. Uh, so there you go but uh, no it's enjoyable it's going well and, and technology has fallen into place to kind of help us uh, help us along music's an important part of the games for me so um having uh, streaming services like Groove Shark and what have you where you can you know you can broadcast to your listeners and then everybody hears the same thing at the same time and mixing that with um with the visuals of, uh, of the video hangout and programs like CoSketch if we need to uh, really makes it as close to a tabletop as you can get. I know there are, you know, there are bespoke virtual tabletop um, solutions out there. Um, but we've kind of cobbled together three or four applications and uh, you know, have all those running at once. And mm. initially, it was just Voice over Skype. But as as you know, as British internet has moved from the Steam age into the digital age, it makes it easier to to run things more you know more comprehensively at my end. So yeah, that, that's going nicely. It's going well.
0: I think that it's remarkably impressive that you started running Mage: The Ascension at age ten. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm. I'm starting to feel that the same. Meeting up with with a couple of guys that I used to game with and their wives who I hadn't met before, and they said, "Oh, so so how how long have you known my husband?" And I said, "Oh, well, on and off for it would now be all oh, 23 years." Oh, okay, right. <laughs> so, and and you suddenly think, where did that time go?
1: Wasted it mostly on mage, as far as I can tell. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there is no such thing as wasting it on mage. That's that's probably true. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So Also, tons of console gaming with my kids, actually. It's been lots of fun, too. Uh,
0: anything in particular?
1: Borderlands. Yeah. Large amounts of Borderlands. I, I also bought the uh, the new Alien Isolation game, um, and my copy is, like, so many people's copies glitched, so I'm a bit mm. stuck in that now. But, yeah. But up to, up to the point that I got, it was an extremely good game, and then it stopped working. <laughs> that's kind of frustrating. But I, if we're looking on, online, that's apparently an issue with that game. There's uh, there's more glitches than monsters in that thing.
0: That's a bit of a worry.
1: It is a sh- it's a shame, yeah. And, you know, you you go. On Online, and you see, you know, half a dozen people with the same issue as you. Do and you think, oh, great! So this is never going to get fixed. But uh, up to where I got, which is about forty percent of the way through the game, it is a fantastic game. Um, and I think if you're a PC gamer, a lot of the uh, the issues have been patched. But if you're stuck playing an old Xbox 360 like I am, um, you're kind of out of luck. So uh, it will remain an unfinished, uh, unfinished
0: epic, I think, as far as I'm concerned. Massive shame. Yeah. And what about you, Adrian? The last month has been a bit of a resurgence for me because I've spent the last four years with no gaming group whatsoever, you know, not getting an awful lot of gaming in whatsoever. Over the last probably four to six weeks, I've signed over vast amounts of my paycheck to Fantasy Flight Games. Uh, I'm thinking of just doing a direct deposit into their bank account every month. It'll (laughs) it'll work out much easier, because at the moment, I've been able to get in some games of X-Wing and uh, doing the living card game thing at the moment. So I've got Lord of the Rings, Android Netrunner, and the Star Wars uh, living card game, all of which are absolutely fantastic. Uh, I got into the Lord of the Rings one because it actually has got a solitaire mode as well as up to four players, and it's actually a true cooperative game. Wow. Interesting. Uh, so you actually play against the deck and against the quest, but you do so in a truly cooperative fashion. So when you build your decks, you decide which heroes you're going to take, and uh, you can only take one version. Of, of a hero at the table. So you can all fight over who gets Aragorn. Basically, after that, you're all working together in order to successfully do the quest and kill all of the monsters and uh, and get to the end. And there's a scoring system so, as a team, you can be working to work your way through the quest fairly quickly, and then you can play again and try and beat your old points. Cool. And, it, and the Solitaire version works well? Works very well. I played at Solitaire for about a month before i started playing it with other people what this offers at least in my perspective is that if if i just feel like having a game i can sit down and probably about 40 minutes for myself i can crank through a game but it also allows you to test out your decks against the quest before you actually meet up with other people so you agree on a quest and then you could say okay well i'm going to tweak my deck this way and then you can have almost like a run through and see how things go very cool Uh, So how does a a living card game differ from a a standard collectible card game, would you say? There's a lot of differences, but really the main difference is the distribution model. For those of us who are accustomed to playing uh, Magic the Gathering and those sorts of games, every time a new expansion comes out, you buy it as booster packs and you get randomized cards. So, of course, you get varying rarities and eBay inflation and all of those sorts of things. With a living card game... They will release a combination of deluxe expansions after the core set and then also an adventure path. So a deluxe expansion is a big set that usually has about 160 cards. You buy the deluxe expansion and you have everything that you need. There are no There's no randomization. You just buy it. And then there right. are 60-card adventure paths, which are meant to come out about every six to eight weeks, and there are six of those in a story. So basically what you can do is go out, buy a deluxe expansion, and then buy your six adventure packs for a cycle, and you own all the cards. You don't have to go chasing any down. That's fantastic. In terms of the pricing, it actually works out. It's very affordable. So, I mean, I pay, I pay for an adventure pack roughly the same as what I would pay for three boosters of magic. Okay, wow. That's yeah. really good and I know ahead of schedule exactly what cards I'm getting, I know the quantities, and I know whether or not I want to buy the pack.
1: Yeah, that would have been handy back in the day. When Magic (laughs) the Gathering was at its height, I worked, I ran the game section of a bookstore, and you got a 50% staff discount, and that still didn't help. (laughs) No,
0: definitely wouldn't have. No, (laughs) it would have made it worse. The other thing was last weekend I started with a brand new group and I'm running Vampire the Masquerade. Oh, congratulations. So I I'm, I'm, it uh, it's not going too badly. The players got together for the first session and made characters and then we got together and actually ran the uh, the very first gaming session. I thought it went fairly well. They're all playing fairly cautiously because they've realized how vulnerable their vampires are. I'm actually running the Forged in Steel module, so we're starting with the one... I'm running a prelude, and then we'll move on to the one in the back of the Vampire the Masquerade 2nd edition, and then work our way through the Chicago Chronicles
2: after that. Uh, didn't you say that uh, I think two of your players were completely brand new? Two of
0: my players are from my old gaming group, and then one of them is brand new to the gaming group and has never played World of Darkness before. Wonderful. Sorry, Mark, you you had a question?
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, that's the Gary, Indiana thing, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. So I'm kind of playing, Uh really, really playing up the urban decay, uh, especially taking my visual cues from the movie Only Lovers Left Alive. Uh, Yes, I just about to mention that. Yes, perfect. Yeah, (laughs) and that's working really well. And the beginning of the game has basically centred around the possibility that one of the local vampires is straying out of their feeding grounds, and is feeding on people who are coming out of the local blood donation bank. <laughs> <laughs> nice,
1: nice. And Are you using uh, uh, revised, or what, what iteration of the rules, V20, or...? Uh,
0: second edition
1: second edition okay right cool
0: I don't own first edition so I figured that I would run it with the next closest thing to the rule set when the game first came out
1: yeah yeah well this is, of all the various editions that I think the difference between vampire first and vampire second is the biggest vampire first has got some really abstracted ways of doing things that's its combat system is really just a couple of opposed roles it kind of became it became a lot more codified in, in later versions but uh I've got a, a lot of big soft spot for vampire first but but second editions uh So that's a fine real set.
0: No pun intended, but second edition was the one I cut my teeth on. So uh, that's it holds a it holds a uh, very special place in my heart. I'll go back to second edition every time. Okay, guys, I think that it's time now that we go into the world of Darkness news. Taking a quick look at the Onyx Path publishing site, uh, the main one that I want to draw everyone's attention to, and it should be no great surprise, is a post from Matt McFarland, which is saying that they are starting work on the development for Changeling 20th anniversary edition uh, he puts yes. yes he put that out in a post in early march and when a few people asked some fairly pointed questions like are you the developer and is work starting he answered yes so we have matt mcfarland as the developer for changeling 20 and hopefully we'll be seeing something else coming out of this very soon
1: yeah that's fantastic news was, uh, and he announced
0: it with announced it with a Shakespeare quote, if I recall correctly. So he most certainly Brilliant. did. Yeah. <laughs> which is that which is how one does things with changeling. Yes. <laughs> The other news include, uh, that if you're cha- if you're a big fan of the classic cover art of the world of darkness, it is now possible to get a lot of them on t-shirts. So for example, if you wanted the front cover of Book of the Worms, second edition, or Khan's Places of Power, or even Horizon's Stronghold of Hope, Initiates of the Art, or Technomancer's Toy Box, then you'll be able to get all of these on a t-shirt from here. So what I'll do is put a link to that in the show notes if you want to take a look at the onyx path's red bubble store you'll find all of those t-shirts there
1: there was a, a poster a couple of weeks before that with some t-shirt designs that had the craft symbols, um, for Mage the Ascension. And this was a big thrill to Mage fans, uh, because these, it kind of served as a preview of symbols that are going to be, you know, shown in Mage 20. Some of these crafts didn't actually have symbols before. So the first place you get to see them is on a t-shirt design, which is really exciting. Interesting. I yeah, know
2: on, yeah. uh, drive-through also kind of, it's not t-shirts, but it's kind of related. They've been doing a lot of posters recently. Uh, the last mm. two months or so, and they kind of range from everything, both classic and new world of darkness and uh, i haven 't got any of those yet I'd, I'd like to see what the quality is I, the I was thinking the same be. thing they look cheaper than even like the shipping cost for for the physical product might be, but uh the one for uh Boston for oh. the new the new image that one looked pretty interesting something you might have cool, that's out. a cool image yeah, that's yeah. a cool image. A lot of them look really nice and I, I I thought it was just interesting because all of a sudden it seems like they were just popping up out of nowhere, and there's a lot of a lot of options. Well, I
1: know in all the Kickstarter surveys they ask what would you like to see from Onyx Path, and I've always typed in posters. So now that you know, now that we're seeing them, that's great. That's yeah, that's really good.
0: Excellent. So obviously, there's more than just you requesting posters.
1: Yes. Yeah. I'm not trying to claim credit for it.
0: <laughs> no. No. Most certainly not. No. Most certainly not. That, that would be if, if that's if
1: that's true though, then I, I can think of a few more things that I would write down. But no, it's probably not just me.
0: <laughs> I was thinking that if we've got you know Eddie Webb sitting over there saying, well. Mark wants posters, give the man posters. I have a list of things that I will pass through you. <laughs> <dead>. <laughs> you can pick up the special bat phone to Eddie Webb and, and place a couple <laughs> of <the> requests. <laughs> <What> phone? <laughs> For New World of Darkness, the release of the Fallen World Anthology in print has occurred during March as well. In this, you'll find 12 short stories, 8 which are original to this collection, and they've got a fine uh, selection of authors. Most of the names here will not be of any surprise to people familiar with the New World of Darkness. So that's available as well through Drive-Thru RPG.
1: Speaking of kickstarters, um, there has also been a couple of posts in recent weeks about Mage 20th um, with Phil Boccato nearing the end of his, his first kind of uh, first review pass of it and we've been getting little snippets of, of uh, art preview I mean, the art looks gorgeous looks at the the layout that they posted a couple of previews of the layout on the Kickstarter page it's been such a long time that you know any little bit of drip feeding sends us mage fans into a, a real frenzy over that and so hopefully we're going to see a backer PDF sometime in the next month or so um yeah. so that would that, be fantastic that'd be yes
2: as of this recording last night i received that that uh, kickstarter email update and i was i was busy at the time when i read it so i was just scanning through i could have swore it said the initial pdf version for the kickstarter patrons was out so i was spending like a minute seriously looking email, looking for a link <laughs> and then i went back and reread it and it's like no it'll be out soon damn it <laughs>
0: Are they going to be taking the same approach as they did for the Dark Ages Kickstarter, where they'll release the PDF to the backers and then use that as almost a quality assurance process?
1: Yeah, Rich Thomas said something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. Which would be I nice, because
0: hope- the open... Sorry, go on,
1: I was saying, I just
2: I said I hope so.
1: Well, the open development approach for Mage has not been as open as, say, for example, Dark Ages has or Book of the Worm has or some of the other stuff. We haven't received, you know, the the, the raw text. There haven't been regular previews of some of the meaty content. And Phil's posted some snippets up here and there. In fact, uh, you can uh, find a, a 60-odd page compilation of all of his various previews. But there's been very little crunch, really, a very little uh, sight of what the rules are going to be. So, yeah, uh, salivating in anticipation would not be an understatement where this is concerned.
0: <laughs> do we have any word on whether or not the index has been completed? Index? They, they don't need an index.
2: <laughs> it's only
0: 600
1: pages long.
2: <laughs> Actually, one thing I hope that they do do, especially on the PDF front, there's something that really, really annoyed me about the the V20. I hope they break it up. So in the V20, they actually broke it up into three separate sections. There's the, uh, you know, chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three. And each of them in themselves are almost, you know, an entire book, like 200 pages. Yeah. I hope they do this with the mage as well. They did it for the uh, Mummy of the Cursed for the New World of Darkness. So you can actually download the three different sections separately as their oh, own nice. PDF files. Oh, cool. That would be so nice because reading on, on a tablet... Every time I open up the V20, it takes it takes a little while for it to load the book.
1: Yeah, my Werewolf, is, is, <laughs> my Werewolf PDF is really slow like that as well, actually. My V20 is okay, but the, the Werewolf one takes ages to page through
2: it. So, again, if you have that uh, secret little WAD bat phone out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <how I> <laughs> uh, actually, the first time the V20 came out, I was actually deployed. And the reason I came, I came up with this idea is because it took forever. Ever to try and download that book, I I was literally trying for about a day straight trying to get the book because every time it get to around sixty percent, I would lose internet connection and have to start all over again. Oh no. The question
0: that I've got with Vampire the Masquerade, and, and I, I can't get a confirmation here at the moment on the drive-through RPG website, someone had told me that when you do the print-on-demand version of V20, it actually arrives as two volumes rather than just a single one, because it's 529 pages. Do you, either one of you know if that's correct?
1: There was, there was the, the, the deluxe version, Initially was two volumes players in my tabletop group here had the black and white version as a single book But I believe that the color version was two volumes now. I'm not seeing that on the on the uh, on the drive through RPG page page now so they may have changed it so that with you know advancements in the printing that the uh, The full full bleed full color deluxe version is now down to a single volume, but it used to be two I don't know if it still is
2: okay I, I could be wrong. I thought I had heard actually kind of the opposite. That originally it came out as one, but so many people were complaining because it was so thick that the the pages wouldn't stick. It would the, the book actually would start breaking fairly quickly just because it was so thick that they actually right. went went to two separate. They broke it up into two separate sections. Could be wrong on that, but
1: well, then maybe there's an earlier phase because my guys didn't stop. They didn't order their copies until a few months in so there could well have been an earlier kind of faulty iteration yeah
0: okay, I think we'll throw this one out to the community so if anyone listening knows the story behind this please drop us a line right well I think that that will wrap up the world of darkness news for this episode
1: there's one item I think we need to we need to get to uh, Beckett you you noticed a, a release for wheel the forsaken yes, that people might uh... might want to talk about yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> true. Actually, there was a couple I noticed recently. The it's not new, but the uh, God Machine Chronicles for the New World of Darkness just went. It's probably over now, but they dropped the price on it for I think it was like Dungeon Masters Week or something. Um, oh, yeah, so I, picked, I I picked that up. It was it was actually really cheap. Uh, for the time it's probably over now and then like you said werewolf second edition has finally come up um which also probably means in relation to the mage to the ascension mage mage second edition may be coming out too mage, soon mage the awakening no uh, i mean for mage the ascension you were mentioned that the m20 oh right i'm thinking mage second edition may come out fairly at the same time maybe I haven't heard anything official, but just okay. speculation. As far as Forsaken 2nd Edition, it looks like the pre-Errata version, like we were talking about with the uh, Dark Ages 20, where they have a pre-version so people can kind of look it over, catch any errors. That's come out. Not only backers can buy it, it's actually open... To everybody, I believe. It looks like this, as well as kind of introducing the new updates from the God Machine Chronicles to the new system mechanics and rules, they've also included the from the original Werewolf Forsaken, the Indigo Chronicles, which of kind of gives the, the game a bit of focus. One of the complaints of the original Werewolf the Forsaken was that it was like it was a really interesting read and it had a lot of, of material in there, a lot of hooks, or actually not not a lot of hooks. It had a lot of like beautiful mechanics. It kind of filled out the world a lot. But after one read the whole book, there was kind of this idea of like, okay, now I've read it. Now what? What do I do with this? The Indigo Chronicles kind of introduced... <laughs> a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a story.
1: Well, the Imogen Chronicles sound like uh, they sound like an interesting uh, approach to the game. I've, one of the things I've been reading um, is that a couple of uh, of the uh, of the fans have been looking through the. Uh, through the second edition, have been saying that um, some people find it almost too positive that a lot of the traits that they thought made the Forsaken actually forsaken um, are less prevalent in the game, and uh, that that, there is more of a heroic slant to it. Um, But I haven't seen the image in Chronicles yet, so I I, I can't speak to that personally. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how to pronounce it either.
0: (laughs) For those of you at home who are wondering why we're laughing... When we put together the show notes for this episode, there were several different spellings for the Idigum Chronicles. And so, uh, yeah, obviously that's come through to the recording itself. <laughs> okay. She's not called Imogen? <laughs> <laughs> Imogen might be an NPC. Good. <laughs> Excellent. Who wears something indigo, I'm sure.
2: <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, and the last kind of big bit of news, again, New World of Darkness related, they've done another Kickstarter recently that funded for the New World of Darkness Dark Age. Or not Dark Age. uh, Dark Eras. Dark Eras.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Kind of similar to how in the the old World of Darkness there was, for example, there was the Dark Ages, the Victorian era, from Age there was the Sorcerer's Crusade, kind of the Renaissance era. This it's a book that's uh, just a compilation that for all the games and it introduces one or two alternate Timeline settings for each of the games looked incredibly interesting.
1: I'm definitely getting a copy of that. Mage in uh, the era of Alexander the Great and the Stone Age, if I recall correctly, fantastic. Uh,
2: (laughs) One of the things I didn't I didn't actually kick back this one. I wanted to, but just financially couldn't. I was reading some of the extra like uh, the things you unlocked if they got to certain price amounts, and Mm. they. One of the things that they did with this was introducing new chapters for different settings. I think one of them was like Abrahamic Hunter setting. Another one was uh, Napoleon, uh, Napoleonic Mummy, I believe. I could be wrong on that. For each of the new backer rewards or Kickstarter backer rewards, there was like a new setting they were going to add. And it got to the point uh, a little bit earlier on, I think, where they were actually asking the community what. Setting they wanted, so that yeah, that was like I a voting thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I thought that was a really, really interesting way of doing things. The two that are of interest to me are the changing the
0: lost one, which is called Lily Saber and Thorn, which is 1600s through to early 1700s, which is under the reign of Louis the Fourteenth. Uh, I think oh. Changelings plus Louis Fourteenth, absolute win. The other one is The Geist of the Sin Eaters, and this is more for actually the person writing it, because Geist of the Sin Eaters will be 1950s New Zealand, written by Cam Banks, which, uh, <laughs> if you are familiar with Cam Banks' work, he's predominantly worked on things like uh, Dragonlance, in the past, yeah. but lives in New Zealand and uh, jumped at the opportunity to showcase the islands. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to reading more of Cam Banks. Yeah, his,
1: his, his uh, D20 era stuff was
0: great. He did, a, If I recall correctly, he did a great supplement called Heroes
1: of Horror with uh, Ari Marmel, who's also, um, you know, old, old, old World of Darkness alumnus, so uh, I'm interested to read that.
0: I'm always interested to see, especially when writers... Cross game lines and to see what actually ends up happening because it's interesting you you mentioned Ari Marmel. He wrote a short story for Eberron which is probably the creepiest Eberron story you will ever read in your life because it's one of those that you just have a bit of a think about the ramifications of what he puts in that short story and I've always wanted to use it as a plot hook so I think cross pollination always a good thing. Do you know what
2: the name of the story was?
0: I can't remember but it was an anthology of short fiction something like Tales of the War or Tales of the Last war something like that and it's it's literally the last story in that Mm, if you get a chance if you are if you are a fan of eberron at all or a fan of just basic fantasy um get a hold of it and just just read that last story it's fantastic cool so does that wrap up the news I yeah. believe. Well, as you can see, there has been a ton of stuff happening over at yeah. Onyx Path Publishing. We'll put a link to the main page in the show notes and if any of this uh, is of interest to you, certainly follow it up because we're certainly at the moment spoiled for choice.
1: Yes, who said World of Darkness is dead? My goodness. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right now, we'll head into the classic World of Darkness section and take a look at the meter of tonight's episode, which will be a review of Midnight Circus from the Classic World of Darkness line.
2: Classic World of Darkness.
0: So tonight we're going to take an in-depth view of the Midnight Circus book, which was published in 1996 for the Classic World of Darkness line. What... It tries to do very, very much is to weave together all five of the larger game lines of the classic World of Darkness and give a setting and a series of antagonists who can all interact across those five game lines. It is crossover at its most intensive. And to be honest, we're treated with a veritable cavalcade of NPCs, everything from a liquefied Nosferatu, Barabbi by the Dozen, Jabba the Hutters of a femori, and an honest-to-goodness motorcycle-riding clown-devouring <laughs> Yes. <laughs> does this sound like the sort of game you would like to run? Well, if so, Midnight Circus is definitely the book for you. But I think that what it does very well is to tackle the idea of crossover games in the Old World of Darkness. So what we'll do tonight is take an overview of the book and our impressions of how we might use it, and then also touch on the very large issue of running crossover games in the classic World of Darkness. So first of all, I thought I would open the floor to you guys for just general initial overview of this book after you'd read through it again, bearing in mind that it's almost twenty years old by itself, and see what you thought of the book.
1: Yeah, wow. I and mean, the, th- the thing that struck me was, uh, if I can, you know, sum it up as quickly as possible, is that it's pretty damn gonzo. Um, but this is, this, uh, you know, this can, this is, this can be something that puts some people off. But at the same time, I find it a massive draw. If you're gonna do multiple levels of crossover, if you're gonna push believability to its extreme, where better to do it than in a circus, you know, where the normal rules of acceptability are somewhat suspended. So I thought, um, as a general concept, stuffing numerous splats in, un, under one cover, what better place to do it than in this deranged circus environment? Um, okay. Leafing through it, one of the things that really stood out to me was how well the artwork reflects the text. Um, sometimes, you'll, you know, you'll get art, art that seems only tangentially related to what you're reading, but here you can really go through each page and point at you know, that's Tub of Flesh, that's the, uh, the Black Spiral Dancers, those are the, the clown people, there's Cavendish, there's Husk, etc., etc. The thing that I came away with was, actually, this is five-way crossovers done right. Um, at, at no particular time is it just kind of like, well, this is a vampire, the masquerade supplement, and we've stuffed some werewolves in here, and there's a mage over there in the corner, or, um, you know, this is actually just all changeling all the time, and we're going to cast everybody as weird versions of red caps or what have you. It, it, it manages to make the the five main splats fit together. In in a fairly coherent way, which is just such a terribly difficult thing to do. You know, if you're a storyteller who's ever tried to run Old World of Darkness crossover games, um, Old World of Darkness is uh, is famous for. You know, for crossovers being something that everybody did, um, but the game was always fairly explicit in saying, you really shouldn't be doing this too much. But, you know, everyone went ahead and did it anyway. And so to see it put to such effective use was was really quite refreshing. Yeah.
2: What about yourself, Beckett? I agree. I think overall the book is pretty self-contained. Like you said, it's it's got plenty of material both for the storyteller and for players for doing a crossover. But if you wanted to, you could take this from any any single game and really add like you could have an entire chronicle or you know an entire story arc with just that one game. If you wanted to play it as changelings, it would you know you could do that. There's enough in this book for it to go that way. You could look at you know the history of the whole circus. You could kind of go with almost a new world of darkness changeling, the lost kind of approach to it for changing the dreaming and have the characters trying to escape this kind of uh, ever present, you know, like imprisoning group. The Midnight Circus has kind of the unique ability that they can literally follow you you just about anywhere.
0: That's a very good point, actually, if I can jump in there, because normally... I find that the gaming fiction that appears in most of these source books, it is very hit and miss. Sometimes you get the feeling that the fiction is simply put in because we expect fiction at the beginning of a White Wolf supplement. (laughs) However, what Midnight Circus does very, very well is that it uses the fiction to set the tone and to also tell a story that you could almost replicate as someone's initiation into learning that the circus exists. And then really piquing their curiosity as to how they might then go about looking into the circus, investigating it, and perhaps even giving them a very personal motivation of trying to rescue a loved one from the circus. So Mm -hmm. I think that in many ways, this hits a really high note from the very beginning of the book, just through the fiction. I've always contended that fiction should expand the game world and it should give you a solid sense of what it is about. And on both of those notes, I think that it does so perfectly. Yeah, I agree. completely
1: agree. I've always been, you know, regular listeners of the show will know that I've often been somewhat disparaging of the fiction in World of Darkness books down to the point where I sometimes die, I don't even read it. Um, but we're, we're doing a review and I thought I'm going to do this properly and I haven't looked at this thing in 20 years and I read through it and I thought, this is great. This is really good. There's a, like you said, there's a great little story here. There's a great personal hook. And then, of course, when you go through the book, there's all the characters in the story and the events that are alluded to in the story are covered in the text as well and the various background notes of the various people. So, yeah, it's a fantastic way to open it. Really good.
2: I agree. It, normally, I kind of await the, the early and the... The concluding fiction. In this case, I think they did it right. They kind of showed rather than told. And it introduces a couple things in the fiction that, as you read the rest of the books, you know, into the mechanics, into the history of the circus, it kind of expands upon those things and introduces a little yeah. bit of a mystery and a bit of a hook that you can use. Yeah,
0: it's good. So the book is basically divided up into five chapters. After the fiction, so we get a history of the circus, which is Anastasio's old-time lunar carnival and midnight circus. Chapter 2 covering the whole sick crew, which is our list of NPCs. Chapter 3 gives you some uh, operating procedures for the circus, and really the... The method by which it goes about its business uh, mm-hmm. bread and bread and circuses expands upon this, and then Chapter Five, The Wasteland is a short adventure set around New Year's Eve, which you could use to introduce the circus. So if we take a look just broadly through those chapters and we'll discuss each one of them with some brevity as we move our way through and also talk about how we might start to use this. My observation as well that I wanted to throw into the very beginning is that whilst the power level and whilst just the type of synergy that they are trying for is very much over the top, I would agree with Mark that they've picked very, very strategically what type of an environment they want to explore. And the circus yeah. is actually a really good choice because you expect things to be somewhat out of the ordinary. You expect to suspend your disbelief. When I was reading through this book, I think that the the major source of inspiration for using this nowadays would be to take a look at the series Carnival. You're familiar with that one? I'm not. I've heard of it, but I've never...
2: Never seen
1: it. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that's that's on my radar that I've not had a chance to watch. I I, I definitely agree that for what little I know of the show, it's something that uh, that certainly seems to fit the ethos of the book.
0: Oh, most certainly. Carnival essentially follows a carnival during the Great Depression. And every single character there fits sort of very, very strongly the traditional circus motifs that you would expect. So you've got the strong man and you've got the bearded lady, for example, and you've got the snake man. But... Underneath it is a very, very strong supernatural theme and the idea that the people who have actually got real power in the circus have had to trade something in order to get it. The Christ, notion, Christ. the notion that no power comes without price is strongly prevalent through both of the series. The only disappointing thing about Carnival is that it was cut prematurely short at the end of the second season due to ratings and the usual uh, sort of network machinations that one expects from very good series with niche audiences.
1: That's unheard of, a great series that's cut short before its, before it's prime. I, I'm, I'm shocked. Shocked, <laughs> I tell you.
0: <laughs> it uh. never happens.
1: <laughs> I got a lot of the same kind of feel, but uh, um, going back a little bit, it reminded me an awful lot of Something Wicked This Way Comes. You know, both the original book and the uh, the, the movie. Similar kind of ideas. Circus comes to town, um, and things have their price. So, yeah, good
0: touchstones. Now, I know, Beckett, you had some observations regarding the, the first chapter, the history of the circus. Would you like to share those?
2: Sure, sure. Um, it's written in a sense where kind of like some of the other books like we did for Halls of the Arcanum where it shows various pieces of the history and it builds upon them by presenting them as newspaper articles or interviews and it's just small little clips and cutscenes that kind of expound upon one little aspect of it and then the next one might build on to it in a different way. It talks about how the how the circus goes back ages. You know, we, There's no actual specific date given, but the history basically back to the beginning of time. And depending on what game line you are using as kind of the truth, I guess, in the world of darkness, if you were using this, um, that could be, you know, like back to uh, vampire's Enoch, or it could be when the first mages awoke, or it could even be like preexisting to our world for the, you know, Arcadia, whoever, you know, whatever time that came into existence, if it ever came into existence at all, maybe it existed For all eternity. Some of the snippets, you know, talk about how back in the Roman times, on the vampire side, one of them goes back to early First and Second City time era, at least Mm. some of the insinuations. And then it, you know, it pops up to uh, 1857. It talks about more like 1900s. Of course, this was written 20 years ago, so it doesn't go into the future. But it shows examples of what the carnival itself has been doing throughout history. I kind of like the idea on the, the mystical side uh, of it being a originally coming from a spirit named Kara that was kind of mistaken for Carnival. And it began as some of her rights as a way to protect humanity from the supernatural. And yeah. part of her rights were about exchanging things. And over time, as different corrupting malevolent spirits and and things kind of become attached to the carnival it completely switches its focus but at the same time this very minor almost dead spirit of car is is still present and still has a little bit of influence i also like that this is one of the ways it begins to tie in all the different games where both uh well werewolf Definitely, you start seeing how the, how werewolf, as a setting becomes begins to influence the carnival in ways that would definitely start drawing in werewolf and you know either Garu or black spiral dancer type characters that would be interested in, in investigating or even joining this carnival at the same time it's got a reference that could be either for Mage or vampire with Apophis yeah, being another kind of mastermind. That's not completely in control, but is definitely beginning to influence the carnival. I don't know. I, th- I think it's really, really well done.
1: I, I love the fact that the opening chapter is essentially a, a collection of handouts. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not a history that you have to try and drip feed your players as a storyteller, one, one way or the other. You could photocopy the book or print out the PDF if there's a PDF version that you have. And, and, here you go, here's a newspaper clipping from the, from the 1800s, or here's an ancient stone tablet that talks about Namrel, the, you know, kite. Um, mm-hmm. Just really great way to make it easier on the storyteller to get this information into the game. And like you say, give hints as to what the circus has been up to over the years. Uh, mm-hmm. Fantastic approach, I thought.
2: It also kind of begins to explain that when the circus comes to town, bad things happen around it but doesn't really give exact, I guess, ramifications.
0: It does leave an awful lot up to the interpretation of both the storyteller and the players. The one thing I wanted to comment on with regards to this first section, the history of the circus, is just the, the style, I think, works very well. I'm currently rereading uh, Anne Rice's The Witching Hour uh, at the oh. moment, and in the middle of that book, it sidesteps the the main narrative and provides a series of Talamasca reports on the Mayfair family from down through the generations of both the family and also of Talamasca investigators, and it speaks about reports that they get from servants and private investigators and some of the slaves of the family and the like. I thought that it was a really good way in The Witching Hour of producing a really rich narrative that essentially gives you the history, but you don't necessarily feel as though you're being lectured at. And I see a very similar approach in the history of the Midnight Circus, because it is very much that broken narrative and one that is situated in each time frame. So it doesn't make you feel as though you're reading the standard revisionist history in an old World of Darkness books. Which, to be perfectly frank, I usually skip. This one yeah. I was actually willing to read. Yeah, it's very, very entertaining. It moves then to chapter two, the whole sick crew. And did you want to cover this one, Mark?
1: Oh, where to start? Um, what <laughs> struck me about this, and, and this is what I've used um, the book for mostly over the years. I've never run it. I've never run the uh, the Wasteland scenario. But if I ever need, um, a, you know. a... Quickly started up changeling or quickly started up NPC, um, this is the place to go. There are pages and pages and pages of Guru, changelings, mages, a couple of wraiths, plenty of vampires, Fomori, Kenfolk, Goral, you name it, it's in here. Um, so, this is, this is what I've mainly used the book for as a, a ready kind of compilation of NPCs. Um, but what it does is the book breaks it down into, um, into circles. Um, so you have the the outer circle being the, the, the more lower powered or um, less influential members of the circus, and then you know the the, the masters of the various sideshows, um, the uh, the factotums of the of the inner trinity who run the circus itself, and then finally the, the ruling trinity who are at present uh, a mage, a changeling, and a vampire. And the idea goes that the circus has had a, always had a trinity running it, which reflects um, what you were saying, Beckett, about these three forces pulling in various directions, Kara, uh, Worm, and Apophis. But over time, who is in the Trinity changes, so the, the, the rulers at the heads of the, uh, of the circus change from, from time to time. So, for example, in here, the, the vampire member is the most recent member of the circus, and he's still not quite sure that he's signed up to a good thing. Um, so you have this wonderful uh, conflict is based around Triangle's idea, where the various influences behind the circus are pulling their mortal or uh, immortal representatives in various ways and in this in this tug of war uh, this opens up the gaps as it were for the players to step in and you know start getting their fingers in the pie so while on the surface of it you you do seem to have a A collection of antagonists here as you read through the various circles of the circus you can see that not everybody's motivations lie in the same direction and there are there are numerous allies to be found and there are places where, where the player characters can kind of step in and exert influence and turn a part of the circus against itself so, as a as a collection of NPCs, this chapter is a a great depiction of how to use conflict and allegiance and competing factions in your game. So, even if, if you're not going to be using the circus as is, you can certainly use this, for example, to uh, I don't know model the supernatural population of a city and show how one group's influence and one group's motivations and desires will play off another one. A couple of criticisms, the The amount of NPCs and the amount of motivations and factions and what have you means that it could have done with one of those relationship maps, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like they they had in the old Chicago Chronicles books or uh, in um, Major's Book of Chantries where you have, you know. Porthos hates Charon, and um, the Janissaries want to fight with the crucible of Fig, and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so that, I think, was missing. because um, uh, after, after my first read-through, I sat back and I just thought, whoa, whoa, whoa okay, how do I make sense of this? I'm going to have to go away and, and, and draw a spider diagram or something. So yeah, that's something that I could have done with. Um, and my other main gripe was that uh, the high-power mage, the guy who I've been waiting 60-odd pages to read about, is missing an erate stat. <laughs> 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 what?! The one most important stat in his entire write-up, and it's not there. You can kind of look at his his spheres and know that he's going to have at least, you know, Arate 5. But the power level of the book means that even some of the lower powered mages were given Arate four, five, and six. So this guy's got to be at least a seven and an eight. And that kind of that brings me on to my, my final point about this. And they, they do highlight this fairly in the book, which is that the overall power level is high. One of the first characters you meet in the outer circle of the circus, the uh, you know the lowly nobodies, is a Goral. Yes. Um, And you think what? (laughs) Corral? And he's he's, he's just—he's—he's—he's the bear riding a bike. What? What am I going to see next? And that really does set the tone for this thing. Uh, and they do, as I say, they do call it out in the introduction to the book, saying this is this is a high-powered supplement with a high-powered adventure. And they make the, the excellent point that if you if you just run it, say, as a straight vampire game, or if you run it as a straight mage game, the characters are probably going to fail, which really empowers the concept of the book as a piece of crossover, um, namely that. To, to get the most out of it as a storyteller, but more importantly, to get the most out of it as a player, you do want to go in there as a crossover group. And certainly, if you come to play through the through the wasteland adventure, um, stopping the, the the atrocity wave, it's not something you're going to be able to do on your own, just as a, a lone cabal or a lone coterie. You do really need people who can. You know, influence the the, the mortal world. Who can see the supernatural world? Who can deal with spirits? Who can identify and tap and stop prime? Who can access the dreaming? um, Who can tap into the shadowlands to see what's going on there? Um, So that that synergy, I think, comes across very well.
0: Mm -hmm. I would agree with the, uh, the the sheer overwhelming nature of the NPCs, because ultimately, what we have here is. 33 pages of NPC description stats background motivations and agendas and I think that can very easily get bogged down in all of this. What they have done a really good job of doing is linking existing lore to this book. So rather mm-hmm. than making this just kind of the, the ultimate mashup book and we've thrown things in, there are little nuggets of information all the way through here. Things like, for example, the vampire that you just mentioned, Mark, that vampire's sire is Prince Villon. Which of course is the yeah. Prince of Paris. There are mentions of the seventh generation, which for those of us who know first edition Werewolf, uh, will ring a bell. There's mention of the resurgence for changeling, and even one of the characters. I'll don't have a problem giving this one away. Is listed as being the last Croaton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which, yeah. And they even name che- they even name check Sasha Vicos too. Just just in you know in case <laughs> you're thinking there's a World of
1: Darkness book that Sasha Vicos doesn't appear in. No. Uh, he she is in here as well although there is
0: a complete <laughs> lack of rasputin yes no this is true there is no rasputin well,
2: that might answer the question why there's no Ar- arita score listed <laughs> <Nah>.
0: <laughs> devin cavendish your secret is revealed <laughs> <laughs>
2: we know who you
0: really are however i think that the who maybe aren't as familiar with all of the five game lines, this is probably the most daunting chapter in the entire book. Up front, back in the introduction, it does say, here's a list of books that will be handy to have in order to get the most value out of this book. <laughs> it's a fairly daunting list.
2: Weren't we talking about a World of Darkness checklist earlier? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Yes. And I think that even though it says in the introduction, for example, if you don't have a copy of Changeling the Dreaming, then substitute something that you think is appropriate. The problem with that statement is it presupposes that you... You will, you take one of two looks at the NPCs. On one hand, you could simply read through an NPC's background and say, okay, I've got a bit of a gist about what this character is about. What are some powers that I think that this person would have in order to achieve their goals? And you could substitute some in there. The second line of reasoning, however, is a little bit more vague, which would say that in order to substitute, you would need to actually have a solid idea of what the skills, powers, and talents actually do in order to look for substitutions, at which case you may as well just use the character as it is and do a little bit of research. So I feel that in, in this chapter, one of the things that, I mean, by necessity, They had to create each one of the NPCs true to form and true to the setting which it inhabits. But on the other side, I think that it makes some of the concepts here a little less accessible to people who don't have that stack of books to cross-check.
1: Yeah, I was really impressed by that as I was reading through it. I I thought several times, these guys really know their stuff, the writers. And, of course, Ethan Skemp is the developer, so you can, you know, you know that he's going to have exercised a really fine eye over the top of it. Um, but yeah, it all rang true. The, the stuff on, on changelings and the way that they use, um, as one of the characters, uh, has a, gives glimpses of Arcadia to, to lure changelings to, to do her bidding. (laughs) Or, um, the way that they, the way that they play the, um, Uh, the whole son of ether there's a a crazed kind of son of ether former technocrat so you know prior to the sons of ether defecting to the traditions he comes from that era of the sons of ether Mm. which is a great little nugget in there um Mm -hmm. so yeah but then as you say if you're not overly familiar with all this it's just a little bit esoteric so yeah it's a a challenging piece of work but I, i think it's the kind of thing where if you really are uh an old world of darkness aficionado and you have the kinds of bookshelves that we have, um, you're going to get a lot out of this book.
0: That then brings us to the remaining chapters, which give us an overview of how you might like to use the circus within your own games, as well as giving us really some of the stock standard pieces that you can expect to find at the circus. For example, it gives you Cobra's Progressive Clown Show, which is it's, it's <laughs> a true world of darkness fair in that it it is truly beguiling and somewhat disturbing at the same time. I'll, I'll let. Listeners have a read through that section all of their own. But the aforementioned motorcycle-riding clown-devouring goral makes an appearance here. We have the World of Darkness take on the Tunnel of Love. Uh, which is a truly disturbing place, <laughs> run by a cult of ecstasy barabbi. Those two things should give you a bit of a tone on, on how it actually works. The other one, of course, is Xanadu's Mirror Palace, and you can see already that the authors have taken great pains to look at what we normally find in a sideshow or a circus and have then put... A particularly dark spin on them and uh, mirrors for me hold a hold a particular place in the world of darkness that they are inherently creepy. They are something which features in the folklore of an awful lot of cultures and is something that you can get a lot of chill factor out of so the book does quite well in these sorts of things as well as giving you things like the merry-go-round for example as just a a very short write-up overall they've given us a very good overview of the types of things that you would naturally expect here and then a lot of really good ideas on how you might use them within your own chronicle and some of the denizens that you can expect in any of these sorts of places. Now, my question to you guys is, did any of these places really stand out to you?
2: For me, the uh, the one you just mentioned, Xanadu's Mirror Palace, really stood out because kind of regardless of what exactly you do, how you run or use the Midnight Circus, it's kind of a place that I think you could initially start out kind of uh, hinting as, and showing different aspects of of horror playing upon the whole reflections and then like if you were playing a mage game you could do different uh, aspects of like altered reality and play upon what the characters see play upon things that they see out of the corner of their eye or whatever but one of the things that is really really interesting about this and i'm not going to spoil it but it ties in directly with some of the the circus's history in regards to the, yeah. the last version of the Infernal Triad. Mm-hmm. And there's an NPC here that you could definitely use, either if you're trying to, if this is an antagonistic group that your your characters are trying to investigate and take down, you're a hunter, for example, or if you're actually members of the circus and you're trying to find a way to escape, this NPC, who is a complete bastard, could be used to give you an edge on, and even fill you in on some of the secrets of both the history of the, the, uh, the circus and also the current like political status and weaknesses of some of the higher ranking inner circle members.
1: Yeah, well, I was gonna I was gonna mention the Hall of Mirrors as well, but I was gonna spoil it, um, but I, I won't oh. now. <laughs> uh, but no, no, I, I think I think it's it's a fantastic little environment um, because it is one of the most dangerous places in the circus. When you step into the Hall of Mirrors, you are in for a terrible, terrible time. But as, as Beck has pointed out, there are prizes in there that can unravel uh, the whole motley crew. Um, so no, I'll 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 leave that secret unspoiled then. Um, but yeah, that is something that really stood out to me. A couple of other things I will. I will gloss over briefly the Ferris wheel that allows you to uh to, to go straight into the Heart of the Tempest, which is covered in just kind of a brief paragraph and I just thought, can I reread that again? It's a what? Terrifying, terrify I mean for for Wraith players, this is, you know, Right into the heart of darkness, and it's it's the Ferris wheel. So, yeah, uh, brilliant, brilliant. But the other the other two things were the um, you've you mentioned one of them already was the competing factions of clowns. I thought that was a fantastic idea that there's these various groups of clowns who hate each other, and particularly the progressive one, you know, the 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 super artistic uh, bohemian style clowns. They really stood out to me um, because they're just so disgruntled and they're so upset, and their 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 deeply insightful art is not being taken seriously um, by the uh, by the more kind of frightening, terrifying pennywise style clowns. But the the one location that that I really kind of wanted to dwell on for a minute was the fortune telling tent because of what it does with the different types of fortune tellers that you have in uh, um, in folklore, and it takes three of these and gives each one to put it in mage terms a very compelling paradigm and depending on when you visit the, the fortune telling tent and depending on which of the fortune tellers is, um, uh, is holding uh, holding court at the particular time the contents and, and trappings of the tent change subtly to match uh, you know either this kind of ancient Persian approach or uh, you know um, Indian mystics or the more kind of classical uh, gypsy fortune telling style of, of things and it manages to touch on that without um, without without making any of the mistakes that uh, the world of darkness gypsies did. So I found that particularly rich in flavour, and somewhere that that characters could go back to multiple times, and and the face of the fortune telling tent changes each time they visit, and it's also again remarkable as it's a place that shows that that not everything in the circus is malevolent. Um, there are aspects there that that the characters can tap into um, to find support and to to find to find sanctuary, you know, and in a place like the Midnight Circus, having somewhere where you can just catch your breath, regenerate your willpower points, if you will. Uh, that's extremely vital
2: to have. Something that kind of caught my eye with that, you could kind of tweak it a little bit if you wanted to, and either kind of represent the three main fortune tellers as, like, for instance, the three hags from kind of classical fiction. Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah, yeah. or for a uh, Vampire, and this could extend a little bit to Mage too, but I think it's more well-known in Vampire, is the different aspects of Lilith as the maid the Mother and the, the Crone? The,
1: the Crone, yeah. Yeah, it's very uh, very strong in that regard, I think.
0: And
2: that level of customization,
0: I think, is, is present through a lot of these locations. By the very nature of the Midnight Circus, being that it is crossing all of the game lines, there's nothing to say that you, you couldn't slightly alter the intent or some of the NPCs around this or even include some of the game lines that weren't included in the original version. For example, if you decided that, that it would make perfect sense to have one of these areas run by Kuei Jin or by one of the Shem Suheru, then certainly you could do so. This gives you all of the tools and, if you will, the permission to mash up whatever you possibly wanted in here.
2: This may have predated Kindred of the East, but there's actually one character in here, one of the first ones as well. Page 33, the... Uh, what is The mind. Tamika. Mm-hmm. Tamika. She mm. could very easily be substituted for a Kweijin instead of a Kindred. Especially if she went with, like, a, what Dharma is it? The... Uh, Thousand Whispers, is it? The ones with the masks? Oh, uh, the ones that are constantly changing their their life. Um,
0: yep, you're correct. Thousand it, Whispers.
2: Yeah. Could be a really interesting take on her because she's kind of so insane. She believes that she's a character in a, a fiction and everybody else is kind of like a, you know, side personnel. <laughs> everybody else is
0: an NPC. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What it then moves through is that after giving us a a huge number of these locations, and I think importantly, uh, a number of way stations and sanctuaries, places where, as Mark mentioned, uh, you can catch your breath or replenish your power or at least just get a quiet place to try and figure out what on earth is going on. We're also treated then to some mechanics around how the circus starts to ensnare people, and quite rightly, these are snares, barbs, and investments. These are just little ways of the circus starting to get hooks into the souls of those who come through the front door. Some of it can be done quite blatantly, and others is done by deception and trickery. But what I like throughout the discussion of how characters are given snares and barbs is that, generally speaking, if you look back over the encounter in which you are given a snare or a barb, you should be able to see that the truth was there all along. For example, there's uh, there's one where you're actually literally asked to sign your soul away, but the way in which you are asked to do so is completely incongruous with the gravity of the situation. You might just do it as a fun and offhand thing to do, but what you have in fact done is literally signed your soul away.
1: And there's even a the little, the little contract in the book as well that you can print yes. out. Here, sign, just sign this. this one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and well, I think it, it, at one point it actually suggests photocopying those and and passing them around the table and just seeing how many characters sign them out of out of some sort of perverse joy.
2: <laughs> well that uh, I like how one of the NPCs actually knows what's going on with this and in his case he's only signed away a portion of his soul a percentage yes he's he's still got a controlling
0: interest of 53.7 percent in his soul (laughs) i thought that was brilliant i think that the subtlety that you could handle this with is certainly inherent in the book because as i said you can go back and you can see where was it that my character went And there should be almost a series of signposts along the way that you then kick yourself for not seeing, as opposed to the rather ham-fisted way that you can deal with this. And I will hearken back to, uh, in Mage the Ascension, the first edition Book of Madness with their idea of demonic investments. It was very mechanically driven, and there wasn't a lot of advice around how to handle this with a certain amount of finesse. So you can see that the maturity has definitely come into the writing and the concepts around this slow damnation, and I think the, be- the book is certainly better for it.
1: Yeah, it's one of my favourite parts of the book, that was the snares and barb system. Excellent piece of work. And, the, uh, and, and it's the kind of thing that you can pull out and transplant into pretty much any game that involves gradual possession or gradual corruption. I was really pleased to see that.
0: So after this, we then get to a level which starts to talk about um, Chapter 4, Bread and Circus, Which walks us through really how each one of the supernatural game lines understands the carnival and it also gives us the deep dark secrets of the carnival as well as a few rules mechanics on handling crossover games really it does what it says on the tin here and then lastly we're given an adventure scenario called the wasteland who wants to take this one well,
1: I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it um, what i enjoy what i enjoyed about it is it's it uses um iconic elements um, so, as you mentioned before, it's set around uh, New Year's Eve, so there's a whole, you know, there's the whole symbolic aspect of changing from old to new. But what what struck me as as, as nice about it is it's kind of, it's, it's a series of timed events. So there's a number of NPCs that you interact with, and their motivations lead the characters through the story. But at the same time, there are things going off irrespective of what the player characters actually do. So this lends it a certain sense of urgency. Uh, and that's important to have a uh, certainly something as powerful as the circus that this thing is going is rumbling along doing its own thing and you really need to move if you want to uh, to prevent the issues from you know the the atrocity wave as it's called in the uh, in the adventure from coming to pass which in and of itself by the way without giving me too many spoilers is a completely deranged idea which i loved um being a musician myself the idea that uh, you can you know take musical expression and performance and turn it into this um, murderous sound wave that kills dozens of people yeah great really really cool <laughs> there's also nicely a little mini setting the adventure itself is nominally set in new york but if you want to take this uh, um, this wasteland which refers to a, a particularly run down part of town um you know to, to harken back to what you were saying adrian about uh, about detroit and only lovers left alive um this is something you can plonk down into any large urban sprawl where your game is set and uh, and use actually outside of the context of, uh, of Midnight Circus. So if you just need some inspiration for um, urban decay and uh, ruined, broken parts of, uh, of a city, there's material here that you could lift and use um, as is pretty much wholesale from the book, um, so so that's nice. Uh, and then of course you you know you have the flow of the adventure itself being driven by these these timed events, being driven by the motivations of the NPCs. So it's not something where you're necessarily having to to to, to force the players through. If you use the the hooks and it gives some some very good sample hooks to to get characters from various splats into the adventure, then. The, the structure itself kind of pulls them through uh, without too much effort from the storyteller. Um, and then the way it resolves is likewise handled in a really uh, a really sensible way, showing how the various different supernatural groups uh, will tackle what happens at the end, will tackle the climax. Um, so at all points through the adventure, um, it harkens back to the structure of uh, the rest of the book. Namely, in that it treats the crossover elements with uh, with a degree of, of respect and um, and a degree of use that you can you can put to put uh, put to use with ease as a storyteller.
0: I'd completely agree with that assessment, and uh, even though I've never run the Wasteland, I think that it's set out very logically, and I think that it's set out in terms of how the rest of the book is reflected in this it's almost that the the preceding four chapters have kind of set the tone and set the way in which you would approach a potential crossover game, and then it gives you an actual working example. So it's a nice way of capping off the book.
1: Yeah, that's good.
0: So in terms of final thoughts of uh, Midnight Circus, we, we've looked at whether or not we feel that it... it the world of darkness, whether or not the power levels are appropriate and also whether or not the the venue itself is the most appropriate. I think in order to evaluate this, it it would be a question of how would you use this book in your own game?
1: Yeah, in my own game, as it is, I probably wouldn't use it because when I run, say for example if I run Mage, I try to keep the population to mostly Mages and when I run Werewolf, it's just mostly Werewolves. So I a crossover game for me is, you know, like a season finale that you have just once every now and then. But uh, if if you're going to run a, a game that is set in the larger world of Darkness that embraces crossover, then there's a number of ways to use it, uh, and and you have to be cautious as a storyteller with that because it will affect the overall feel of your game. When you know if if you're starting off with a fairly tight focus in your mage game or a fairly you know, tight ambience of, uh, of doomed predators in, uh, in a vampire game, and then you've got tub of flesh waddling across the scene. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's jarring. <laughs> so, so you have you have to take that into account, I think. But that said, if if um if you're going to use it, well, there's I mean there's a, f- a few things we touched on already. The repository repository of NPCs that, that it is 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 just great, and that's what I've used it for up to now. Um, the snares and barbs is the best things in the book and adrian you know what you said about the original book of madness uh, it's completely true uh, in an early mage game i had a character who went looking for investments and i was like well how am i gonna how am i gonna play this other than she goes please can i have demonic armor you know the, uh, and you go okay here's your demonic armor this system allows you to corrupt characters and uh, and uh, corrupt cabals and coteries and, and packs and what have you Subtly, so you can have this kind of unpleasant uh, intrusion into the game without the characters realizing it until all of a sudden there's these horrendous things happening around them that's, you know, that's using elements of it without actually using the Midnight Circus itself. Um So to use the circus itself, yeah, there's, there's three main things that spring to mind for me. And the first one, of course, is the obvious one. It's inspired by the opening uh, fiction, which is a rescue mission. So that somebody close to the characters or close to one of their family members or loved ones has unfortunately been snared, has unfortunately, you know, received a number of barbs and has been taken away by the circus. And what's nice about this is it's, it's, it's the most easy access because it could be uh, a wraith. It could be one of the mages. It could be, you, you know, your, your pet gargoyle. It could be a, a bygone to whom you are allied. And that gives you an immediate personal motivation to go into a place that you would normally never, ever, ever, ever want to go and, and get them out. Secondly, uh, just touching on Mage, for example, one thing that I was struck by was how many Horizon Realms this place has access to. Oh, yeah. Uh, The Hall of Mirrors is one, one one good example of that. And there's lots of little places where it opens up into a variety of pocket dimensions. So, for example, you may need to get um, the cranial nose ring of Billy out of one of these Horizon Realms. It's been lost for centuries. And the only way to get to that place is to go through the Midnight Circus. So that gives you a motivation, again, to go into this, into a place you'd really be better off steering clear of. But the 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 last way I'd use it actually was, uh, I was really struck by, I mentioned it earlier on, um, the history chapter, uh, how it's all... Um, clippings and news reports and forgotten lore and uh uh, beckett you mentioned the halls of the arcanum um for for an arcanum game or for a project twilight game it's just dripping with hooks there so you know perhaps you're trying to bring a member of the circus to justice let's say you've discovered that there were there were murders in 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 the 1920s in uh, in your local town and somebody who was in their teens then he's now far, far older, he spotted one of the guys who was involved in these crimes, but the person hasn't aged. So now, the local Project Twilight agents, or the local Unkind investigators, or members of the Inquisition, are going to go and track down this supposedly ageless murderer, in what appears to be on the surface just a sort of ex filesy mystery. Um, And then you realize that, in fact, there's this entire circus behind it, um, and you've gotten yourself very rapidly in over your heads.
2: (laughs) How
0: about yourself, Beckett? How would you use
2: it? There's a lot of potential for this one. I'm a little bit more open to an actual you know, crossover, so using it kind of as presented I think could be a potential. A possibility. I would tend to probably want to focus more on the circus being an antagonistic group and probably more of a story arc than kind of the Chronicle itself. So like you mentioned, somebody close to the character is kidnapped or disappears around the Chronicle. One thing that kind of struck me as very odd and with a lot of potential, this was produced before Hunter the Reckoning. The characters being introduced to the carnival could be a really interesting way for a group of hunters to basically become hunters this could be kind of their their introductory prelude and because they are so unprepared for what they would encounter it would kind of necessitate being much more of an investigation style game than go in and kill everything because they will be destroyed and there's a lot of interesting a lot of interesting directions they can go with this the uh, they could kind of go to trying to redeem and Reinstitute the original purpose of the carnival. They could go and trying to uh, if the the carnival and specifically the infernal triad are kind of the the BBEGs I, I guess the kind of the the bad guys at the end that they're trying to either kill or get rid of. It could be something they could you know progressively advance towards to that point and kind of similar to a uh, typical werewolf the apocalypse it's it's a battle that they're going to lose but it's the build-up to that final battle i think there's a lot of potential for a normal crossover game where you know one person's playing a werewolf one person's playing a changeling to kind of highlight the different knowledges and worldviews that they each might have as they as they gain information and the history of the carnival or they interact with the various NPCs and just kind of play upon the idea of like a changeling might know, or this might relate a lot more to a changeling's kind of a uh, history and lore than it does to everybody else. And what that character can bring to the game with that. I thought going back to uh, chapter Two, chapter one, the introduction, and where it kind of explains the history. I thought it was very interesting that the uh, the changeling that is in control of the, the Midnight Circus, as part of the Infernal Triad, sometime in the past, she actually changed the the symbol of the Midnight Carnival mm. Midnight to the crescent moon. I thought that could really play in well with the idea from the Ursaeus Fragments and the Book of Nod, the idea the last daughter of Eve with the Mark of the Crescent Moon. Yeah, yeah. That a little bit. I also thought it was kind of interesting, and this actually plays in really well with the, the newest Dark Ages, e twenty Dark Ages, how they've changed the Salubri, that original vampire from the history, Namriel. A lot of the Salubri take that name, especially with, with the warrior Salubri, take the a name that ends in E-L, the L. Yes, yes, yeah. As a the kind of kind of an angelic, I don't know. It's part of their their kind of code. A lot of the information about that vampire, which we don't have very much of, but it talks about how she left uh, Canine Society way way back in the day and was teaching mortals, you know, symbols and rituals that they could use to ward off evil. It kind of sounds like that could very easily be a salubri. That's a great. That's a great idea. Yeah thought that was interesting the one thing i really really loved about the midnight circus though which is very pertinent to each of the world of darkness games is this kind of unknown mysterious sense of hope and redemption that you can kind of play upon with the spirit of Kara. yeah and how uh it's kind of infuriating to one of the members but something is happening where he's the vampire so his humanity is really 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 dropping but it's kind of the opposite of what happens with uh, Frenzy and the Beast. Something is taking over him and making him be a better person. Yeah, I love uh, the
1: way that the, 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 the Kara is is kind of woven in, still in, in, in depth, in the uh, in the depths of the carnival there. And there's a handful of NPCs who are highlighted as this person knows about the secret of Kara.
2: The last thing I want to say, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit more, is this book, kind of as it is... Could be very excellent and easily interposed into the new world of darkness. It already has an existing NPC that is a Promethean. The Geist, the Singers—they, you know—it'd be very easy to in, to bring the Carnival into that game, or to, you know, to transplant some of the existing NPCs into Geist. Or same with Hunter the Vigil. You could actually, probably, even make an entire new uh, sect or creed based on just around the carnival. Cool.
0: I like all of those ideas, and I think that when we get to the New World of Darkness section, we'll have to explore those in slightly more detail. I've always been somebody who has shied away from crossovers, and when people talk about the the old World of Darkness as having this reputation for lots of crossovers and implied that that's part of the setting, I'm kind of a little bit lost, because my experience has never been of a crossover game ever. So when when I take a look at this it's more of how would I integrate it into a Chronicle that I already have. And my, my three ideas that I have around this is that one is the rescue mission, which has already been touched on. I have thought about using this in um, one of my Werewolf Chronicles many years ago where I wanted them to rescue a named NPC from the Rage Across New York supplement. He's a glass walker by the name of Red Alert, and he's uh, gone missing and has fallen to Hirano and i thought that the the circus would be a really fantastic place to really play up how dangerous harano is and then play up the redemptive aspect where you're trying to drag someone out of Hirano against the backdrop of the circus. I think you get some very powerful scenes out of that. Uh, my second one would be, I would love to run this game um, for mortals, but run it as part of an Inquisition Chronicle. It would be a long exercise in restraint, but... Really, it would be an interesting mix that if these guys were on the hunt for something that had cropped up in the area or something that they had been tracking, perhaps you could then have a bit of a crossover in terms of mortals where the Arcanum is feeding information to the Inquisition in order to uh, bring about some sort of act of justice. And then the Inquisition are going in to try and grab a single denizen of the circus and drag them out. My third one is an idea that my party has kicked around for years because we've run a series of very long chronicles that have resulted in very powerful PCs and the idea that we've kept kicking around is to, to run a short adventure where the players are allowed to look through their character folders and they can pick one of their characters from our previous chronicles and we would make a party based on the choices of the, the players. So I think that this, this would be a really good opportunity to get an idea like that up and running where you say, well, I'll play the character I played in our Mage Chronicle, or I'm going to play the character from our Dark Ages game, or I'm going to play the character from our Werewolf, and just as a one-off, you bring all of those guys together and run this as a session. Yeah, that'll be fun. (laughs) There you have it, folks, an overview of the Midnight Circus, and hopefully we've begun a discussion about Crossovers. It's a massive topic that we could devote a number of episodes to. So if you'd like to discuss this on the G Plus community or drop us a line, uh, certainly do so because we'd love to hear how crossover has been worked into your own chronicles. It is time to move now to the secret frequency. And as I like to say, everything is better with cults. And that includes the secret frequency.
1: Absolutely, yes. Cargo cults. Everything is better with cults. Um, So, what are these things? Well, to New World of Darkness players of Mage of the Awakening, you may already have encountered cargo cults in the book Summoners, um, which uh, we touched on in the space of about five seconds in a Darker Days episode a few years back, so Let's unpack this a little bit more and see what we're talking about here. So, a cargo cult is a practice that grew out of, essentially, cargo drops made to the Melanesian Islands by more technologically advanced nations, initially in the late 19th century, but more prominently throughout the middle of the 20th century. The Japanese were the the first to do it, and the Allied forces followed. What would happen is, They would bring military equipment, food and supplies, etc. to their forces stationed in these islands throughout the Pacific. Now of course this brought massive change to the indigenous peoples living on those islands strangers from the sky or from overseas arriving in terrifying and wondrous machines, bringing incredible goods, bringing food, bringing plenty. Uh, now the ever-redoubtable Wikipedia describes what happened next very succinctly. As the uh, the wars in the Pacific drew to an end, these various militaries abandoned their air bases, they stopped making the cargo drops, and in response to this charismatic individuals indigenous to the islands developed cults that promised to bestow on the cult's followers these deliveries of food, of arms, jeeps, etc. that had now stopped. Uh, The cult leaders explained that if you followed the practices of the cult, the goods would flow once more, gifts from the ancestors or other sources, as had occurred with the outsiders' armies. In attempts to get the cargo to fall by parachute once more, to land again in planes or to arrive once more on ships, the islanders started imitating the practices that they'd seen carried out by the soldiers and the sailors and the airmen. These behaviours usually involved mimicking day-to-day activities and the dress styles of US soldiers, so they would perform parade parade ground drills with wooden or salvaged rifles Um, They would carve headphones made of wood and wear them while sitting in fabricated control towers. They would wave landing signals while standing on runways they'd built or light signal fires and torches to illuminate runways and lighthouses. Obviously it's a form of sympathetic magic going on here. Many of them took it a step further and built life-size replicas of airplanes out of straw and cut new military-style landing strips out of the jungle hoping to attract more planes. In an example of what we would call magical thinking the cult members thought that these foreigners had some special connection to their deities and ancestors um, were only they were, they were the only beings powerful enough to produce such riches. Now these cults were typically created by individual leaders, charismatic individuals uh, in the Melanesian culture, and of course to the outside observer it's not really clear if these were sincere or if they were just simply trying to scam their gullible populations. They tended to hold the rituals well away from established towns and colonial authorities, and would be remiss if I didn't mention that some scholars argue that this interpretation is just flat wrong, that the actual goal was not really to obtain material goods, but it was more about creating and renewing social relationships that had suffered in the wake of, uh, of the wars and the activities of colonial powers. But this is the world of darkness, and we would rather that there is something creepy and cultic taking place here and how can we take this seemingly strange practice and use it to spin some great stories well first up sympathetic magic the idea that like produces like that if you see on one particular day the plane arrives people on the ground wave the colored sticks cargo drops from the plane clearly the colored sticks produce the cargo. You can run with that attitude. So what if it actually does work? What if these these cults are still existing? And some of them, many of them do still exist to this day. They see planes flying high overhead, commercial airliners and what have you, and they start their cultic activities. What if it starts to work? And they start diverting commercial flights from their flight path by magical influence. What if they accidentally draw the attention of military bases, many of which are still scattered throughout the Pacific? You could end up with stranded military personnel stuck on these islands. Flights could be dragged off course, and you could have something very similar to the TV show Lost, where a plane crashes in in an isolated area where the magical paradigm is strong. Normal instruments can fail, and in fact it's the power of the cult that now holds sway. This could lead you to all sorts of tales. Stepping away from the from the Pacific environment, you can use the activities of cargo cults as a model for magical practices that are designed to replicate or draw the attention of poorly understood phenomena. Now, one good example of this would be, for example, a bunch of sleepers witness some majors, a cabal of mages behaving in a certain way accidentally. They stumble in upon a ritual that the mages are carrying out, see things they're not supposed to see. Um, the mages are perhaps just trying to power up their node, or they're summoning an unbrood to gain insight or what have you. And these sleepers witness this kind of event, but they're unobserved by the mages. The mages don't realize that they've been spotted. The sleepers then decide to try and copy the mages. They realize, well, you know, this produced uh, a particular result that the sleepers want to copy, and their results are unexpectedly successful so now the mages have to tackle the problem of a sleeper cult using rituals incorrectly um but with probably disastrous results they've summoned the wrong type of unbrood um, take a look at uh, the first issues of the sandman comic where um the uh, the hermetic uh, Mm -hmm. pseudo-cult there, tries to summon death, and they don't get death at all. They get a dream, which has ramifications that spread across the entire globe, with the sleepy sickness there. Um, You don't need to, of course, put it on such a large scale, but any kind of issues that arise out of uh, unwarranted sleeper activity are going to get the local concilium particularly riled up for players of Mage the Awakening, or the local tradition chantry for Ascension players. You your cabal needs to get this problem sorted out and stowed away before your superiors find out that these sleepers are using a ritual that only you're supposed to know, that you've been gifted by the concilium, and that somehow these guys are using it and broadcasting it on YouTube? Yeah, you want to get that taken <laughs> care of pretty damn quickly. Riffing on the idea of a deceit on the part of the cult leaders, what if the activi- activities of the cult aren't really doing what its members think it is? So the cult leader knows what these rituals are really going to be doing. Um, he tells people that, yeah, it will bring cargo from the skies again, the ancestors will once more reward you with jeeps, but in fact it's not going to bring the attention of technologically advanced nations at all. He's using it to exert influence over his members for personal gain, and maybe he wants to summon spirits to further his own personal agendas. Maybe he is in contact from things from the beyond. You might have your characters stranded in Melanesia and they have to work to overcome this corruption, even if the indigenous people don't want them to. Um, The locals of a particular island might not want your characters coming in and messing up this strong social structure that has been holding them together for several generations. They don't want to hear about the fact that it's going to be, you know, summoning a spectre from the maelstrom. Uh, This is part of their social grouping. So it raises compelling cultural questions about the right to exert influence on local customs because you think you know better. Um, And as a twist on that, the player characters could overcome the cult leader and then find out that the cargo cult's activities were in fact holding back something even worse. He's not summoning malevolent spirits, he's summoning guardian spirits. Uh, And now that the guardian spirit's no longer around, whatever it is that's been sleeping in the volcano is going to wake up. Um, So your supposedly helpful activities have just simply made things completely worse, and now you have to fix the consequences of your meddling. Now finally, I just want to touch on what it says in summoners. In there the cargo cults are They're called the Atakai, and the idea is in there that some of the planes that were overflying these Melanesian islands aren't from our world at all. They're just weird entities that look like planes. Um, Just to kind of read what it says here, they're, they're off, they're asymmetrical. A propeller engine on one wing, something that looks like a black cube on the other. Um, cargo would drop from them, indeed, but it wasn't human cargo, nor cargo from this world. The packages that hit the beach were inscribed with symbols that matched nothing on human record. And the things that are in the boxes are objects, normal objects to begin with, but things that pulse with power. And it also further riffs on this idea with asking by asking the question, where did the Atakai come from? Where do these strange, plane like objects hail from? What, what's their home dimension? What happens if you can actually go there? how would you manage to access this this original point where these strange entities are coming from and it gives three fantastic uh, little hooks here one is a plane crash suffering apparent death in a plane wreck may cause a mage to awaken in this other plane of existence or you could catch a ride with one of the atakai the uh, the weird plane objects appear briefly in this world lose cargo and then head back to their home plane find a way to hijack one of them um, hatch, hitch a ride on one of these strange objects back to the other dimension and then hope you can find a way home again. Alternately destroying a very powerful artifact could cause a terrible gut-wrenching flash, a momentary look into this true material realm where these strange objects are bringing curious artifacts into our world from. Now, there are a number of cargo cults that actually exist in our world. Uh, John Frum is the most famous, but I wanted briefly, um, as a good upstanding Englishman, uh, to touch on the cult of Prince Philip, um, who is, who's our Prince Consort and the hu- husband to, uh, to the Queen. He is revered as a divine entity in one of these cargo cults, with uh, exchanges of photographs that have uh, deep ritual significance um, between the Islanders and Buckingham Palace, who don't seem in any hurry to disabuse the locals of the notion that this guy is not a, an earthbound god, God. Um, so within the world of darkness of course you'd have to riff upon that and i would say look no further than the invisibles comic where um running through that comic is the theme that the british royal family are up to no good that they are in fact trying to birth uh strange creatures through manipulating the royal bloodline and there is a fantastic element Hurt. in there And this take they're not <laughs> have I let the secret out <laughs> there's going to be a knock at my door shortly <laughs> there's a, a storyline in The Invisibles where it's set after the, the death of a Princess Diana where they draw a mythological element to that of Diana the Huntress where um, her death was in fact part of an occult sacrifice and if you um, look at If you scratch the surface of the numerous deranged conspiracy theories surrounding uh, Princess Diana's death, you will find people laying the blame at Prince Philip's feet. Um, So without wishing to lend credence to uh, to, to such nuttiness, um, you have here a really interesting angle that there is a cargo cult dedicated to a member of the royal family who is not above doing away with individuals in society who have strong mythological resonances in their identity and in their names in order to further the goals of his own cult. So what do you guys make of uh, of the cargo cult? Something you could use, do you think?
2: I was going to say, I think so. I think it would kind of take a very particular sort of story, though. Or it could be a lot more easily just for a single story arc. Something that popped out for me was how to use this for uh, Geist. Perhaps the, uh, the natives. The, the, the leader of the cult that kind of initiated the whole process, perhaps they're actually more of a more spiritually inclined individual. And they noticed that not really uh, directly, but when the, the various militaries came to their island or their, around them, they noticed something spiritually changed. Maybe the, the armies brought more malevolent foreign spirits with them or uh, something about their their normal military practices kind of changed the landscape in the spirit world in some way maybe it, it brought some kind of spirit storms or it started de- to deplete their magic maybe the cult itself is actually a way to uh either learn the new rituals that these foreigners used and probably didn't even know about or it could be that maybe when uh, they interpreted these the various military like walking a guard shift or sitting in the tower they observed these rituals actually seem to have some effect on these spirits, so they're trying to emulate those, like you said, to kind of hold something back. Yeah. I think something that could also be really, really interesting would be to take a look at and perhaps even combine both Geist from the New World of Darkness and from the Old World of Darkness Race, the Great War. Mm, Yeah. And kind of look at how maybe it's, maybe everything that is happening in the mystical supernatural side is actually happening happening with the undead the ghosts and wraiths that are trapped here in this foreign land and uh what's even more interesting on that aspect is they're they're mingling with the ghosts of their enemies and the ghosts of the the natives and they have no common ground it's kind of kind of the reverse idea from uh wraith where they have the kingdom of jade the kingdom of the Ebony Kingdom, things like that. It's these other foreigners are being trapped in the deadlands of a foreign land. And That's nice. Yeah, you could definitely go with that. Another idea is, it could be just another move in the jihad for vampire, and this is maybe the aspect that the players might encounter but all the machinations underneath that they might the wheels within wheels that they might discover kind of start slowly tracking it down to some ancient vampire perhaps someone like a fourth or fifth generation kindred or canine that is still in torpor on the land and they're having a war even if it's one on the astral plane with another and everybody's just kind of caught in the middle yeah very cool so those are some of the ideas I had. Another doesn't... I don't know how well it could fit, but imagine if one of the Promethean had kind of sewed away with the military and they traveled here. And uh, because the promethean if they stay in one place too long they begin to have this wasting effect and perhaps the locals noticed this and they attributed it incorrectly to the military when instead there was a promethean there and they've begun to try and emulate what the military did or what the the local community of foreigners did trying to push back this this growing wasteland effect without realizing that it's from a different cause completely Well that's really cool yeah
0: I think that my my two ways of dealing with this would be very similar to what you guys have suggested in terms of the, the idea that the local population has emulated a particular set of movements without actually understanding what they are. I would like to see this as an old guru camp of Uktena bane tenders. And, uh, over down through the centuries, the bane tenders have bound something to the land and through rituals have kept it placated and have kept it bound. And, uh, when basically the Uktena tribe realized that they were running very low on full blood guru, they started to teach some of the kinfolk how Uh, as a last ditch effort a way of keeping this bane bound to the land and so um, as different practices have emerged this has just slowly grown and grown so it is now no longer uh, even remotely identifiable with the original guru rite of binding so I think that even in that situation you could say that the kinfolk who are performing these rituals don't know what they're doing They do however know that they're very important to keep doing And if someone was to come in with the idea of showing them the error of their ways and stopping them, it has catastrophic consequences. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what to do with this idea, but I was thinking that that what if the way in which uh, the local population behaves in terms of emulating a lot of these types of behaviours, especially the, the link to consumerism, what would happen if this was a very deliberate ploy by a Toreador vampire to create the world's largest installation art piece um, <laughs> This installation art piece is called The Folly of Capitalism and is kept alive. (laughs) That is brilliant.
1: (laughs) I'm not sure how to use that either, but that is brilliant.
0: (laughs) No, I
2: I like the idea. If anyone
0: can come up with a way that I can use this in a game, I'm there. But no idea how I'd use it in a practical sense.
2: (laughs) Something else you could probably do with this is uh, a tie-in with The God Machine Chronicles kind of like we we talked about with the other groups where the locals recognize something is different and in this case it's actually that when the uh, the foreign armies came they did they did something that disturbed the god machines mm. because they're more spiritually inclined maybe they're animists or maybe they're kind of a I don't want to say i don't want to make it derogatory sounding but just a kind of primal a primitive religion maybe they're more in tune with the workings and changing of the god machine and in order to what they're attempting to do is prevent the god machine from sending its its guardians and its avatars down to fix things so the only way that they found that can actually do this so far is to emulate what the foreign military were basically doing to keep to keep it broken. Well, to keep it broken, but also to keep it, um, I guess, kind of low on the radar. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That's
2: and, nice. Or, or maybe they don't know what they're doing. Maybe it's just they noticed it. It kind of works, and things are getting better. Or. Not getting worse, at least. Well, it's
1: it, it's like once once it's been once it's been set in motion, the error in the god machine can perpetuate itself. So these people mm. continue doing these things without really realizing why they're doing it, and they're just they're stuck in a they're stuck in a glitch. They're stuck in a loop. Mm. Nice.
2: Something else, kind of a little bit off the wall, is perhaps like we were. I think Adrian was explaining how they made a plane, but it was very off. The the angles were not correct, and there was pieces missing, but instead of they weren't really just missing there was something else in their place that to us shouldn't be there what if yeah. it's actually something what they're trying to do is perfect something that may have been lost either from uh, like atlantis or even perhaps something that came before that the idea that the the technology that we're using in this case the airplanes are actually a incomplete copy of some ancient technology the oh theme, cool there's been yeah the, Maybe they have more of a inclination to it, but they just can't get it right. Nice,
1: I like that. So it's something that's been edited out of our our reality, and where and where we, we we have imperfectly grasped it, and we're trying to reproduce it. And that's great. I like that.
2: Yeah. Oh, I very think cool. there's a lot you could do with that. It it seems like a kind of weird, odd topic, but I think there's a lot of meat to it that you can use. As I said
0: at the very beginning, everything is better with cults. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we're going to move now into the last segment for tonight's episode, which is the new World of Darkness section. In this discussion, we'll be taking a quick look at how we might use circus and carnival material from the New World of Darkness. Now, given my rather poor knowledge overall of the New World of Darkness, I'm going to take a slight back seat in this segment and let Mark and Beckett run the show. So roll up, roll up, and we will see how we can use circuses in the New World of Darkness. It's all yours, gentlemen.
2: World of Darkness 2.0 The first thing I want to say is the New World of Darkness in general is a lot more open and apt to allow a crossover-style game. The sort of gross imbalance between the different game lines in the old World of Darkness is not nearly as prevalent in the new one. There's also not really the idea that for example werewolves automatically hate vampires and want to kill them on sight that doesn't exist an individual werewolf may and an in- individual vampire may but as a truth like the entire supernatural race doesn't exist and like i mentioned earlier i think midnight circus as a book it's pretty easy to actually kind of cross over and take and use as is with minor adjustments, just you know, just to the new system. It's got plenty of hooks that you can use or build upon or change if you need to for your individual game. Like I mentioned earlier, it already has an NPC in there that is essentially a Promethean already. Husk, the created golem. He's essentially an unstatted Promethean, and you can kind of take and use that both as a a player if you wanted to, or for the storyteller. You know, obviously, he's a pretty interesting, unexplored NPC you can go with. Another aspect that's kind of cool about the new World of Darkness is that in most cases, there is no definitive answer to things. It's usually left pretty vague, and multiple possibilities could be potential. Um, options to go with. There's not really one right answer or wrong, one true history. So the way the Midnight Circus is actually written, it plays very well into that style of a sort of open sandbox toolbox approach.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for, for me, the, the the Midnight Circus is uh, is probably better suited to the New World of Darkness for some of the reasons that you've you just pointed out. The ease with which that you know, that iteration of the World of Darkness handles crossovers uh, is great. The rules that are given in Midnight Circus are pretty much the crossover rules that are prevalent in second edition uh, World of Darkness, where they're basically based around fairly gross. Um, Levels of uh, comparing disciplines to gifts and what have you. Um, I'd much prefer using the, the revised system where it's based on kind of success levels. Um, but in the New World of Darkness, yeah, you just you don't have that issue to, uh, at all to begin with. Um, looking at it in more detail, I would I would really draw a lot of inspiration from some of the more recent New World of Darkness books, um, specifically the God Machine Chronicles. We've touched on that a couple of times already in the show today. One of the things that you have in the in Midnight Circus is how you Uses these little secret pathways to move between various realms. Um, so I would run with it as having a connection to the God Machine in some way. You know, you, as you say, there's no definitive answer. But if you if you go back into the early days of the circus, you can see easy ways there that you can tie this into some manifestation of an of an error or a glitch in the in the god machine that somebody has figured out how to take advantage of and manipulate. So instead of using you know trods and spirit arts and moving between realms, what this thing is doing is using broken bits of the god machine to move around. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite literally getting under the wiring and traveling, you know, behind the circuit board in order to rea- reappear in one place and the other. Uh, and this exposes itself. This exposes the circus as a whole um, to uh, uh, to error, to to, to glitch, and to, and to corruption. And this allows you then to recast the um, the snares and barbs uh, as as issues of the god machine itself becoming aware of your character and finding ways to draw your character into uh, into um servitude to the circus itself and to look at a, at a couple of the actual game lines um i think uh, uh with um demon uh, the descent. You, they, you could have demon characters using the circus as a cover for their mundane activities. So they're using it in order to hide from the god machine, um, mm-hmm. taking advantage of the fact that you know the circus is something that slips between the cracks, um, and they they use that to evade the notice of. Um, of the higher authorities. Looking at Mage the Awakening, the, it, it just leapt out from the page to me, the circus as an abyssal intrusion. You now, if you look at something like um, uh, Encounters with the Abyss, the intruders book for Mage the Awakening, it is filled with the kinds of phenomena that you could just drop into in the Midnight Circus and they would be completely at home. Strange, warped manifestations of things that should not be. Um, they could make the, you know, the backstories to any number of sideshows here. And the fact that the Abyss is something that corrupts the minds uh, and personalities and souls of people who encounter it, it, ties very nicely into into the circus itself, I think.
2: I agree. I think uh, Hunter, or sorry, not Hunter, changing the lost also might be so much better to use the Midnight Circus with than changing the dreaming, if you consider right. that perhaps the uh, Infernal Triad are actually true fake.
1: The gentry, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Kind of going off the God Machine, what if the circus um, what if the origin of the circus is actually like you said kind of a glitch instead of what normally happens? the angel or angels that were supposed to fall never actually fell? they remained angels but somehow gained some kind of deeper understanding of the the total totality of the god machine, and the midnight circus is actually their attempt to create their own version of a new god machine. Yeah, definitely. Um,
1: and on a, on a kind of on a similar level uh, again to riff on mage of the awakening, uh, you know, the idea of uh, of Atlantis being a, uh, a kind of Touchstone uh, for elements of reality that have been edited out of existence that no longer ever existed. Uh, I like the idea of the, of the original rites of the circus, specifically of Kara, as perhaps being some tiny lost nugget of Atlantean law. Um, that there was this, this way um, for regular folk to both interact with and be protected from the supernatural world at a time when the laws of the universe were different. And rather than it being um, a, a lost and lonely spirit, as it is in the old world of darkness version, in fact Kara is a, a, a remnant of something from uh, from the Atlantean the Atlantean timeline, from the pre revised the pre rewritten version of the universe. And um, you know you'd you'd kind of look at something like Secrets of the Ruined Temple for this, where you have. Bits of this previous timeline still embedded in our own, uh, and this also gives you a new reason as to why the other members of the infernal trinity are trying so hard to keep this this element under wraps. Um, because not only do they not want people to undo their control, but if this this you know true nugget of of, of, of ancient lore gets out into the into the open world, not only is it going to undo the circus, but it actually could wreak kind of irrevocable harm upon the world itself so then that allows you to recast the infernal trinity as actually misguided benefactors um they're doing this you know not out of the goodness of their heart but they they have stumbled into something um perhaps out of uh out of a desire for personal power or perhaps they were snared by the circus itself and once they've become part of the inner circle uh they realize oh my god what are What am I actually part of here? I can't step away. Much as I want to step away from this thing, I have to stick this out. I have to continue the circus. This thing must endure, because if it doesn't, all that horrendous Kara lore is going to get out into the real world and start re-editing things. And you know, to, t- to take a further look down that that uh, kind of avenue, the um, the Prince of One Hundred Thousand Leaves from uh, the Boston book for Age of the Awakening is quite literally an alien timeline trying to get in and rewrite our own. And so you could recast Kara in that vein as well. So the circus then becomes this hideous, corrupted. And corrupting um, elements that draws people in and devours them and and, and crushes their souls, uh, you know, and renders them into so much uh, esoteric soup. Um, but it has to happen because if it doesn't, the the thing that it's holding back is going to get out and make things so much so much worse.
2: Yeah, kind of a a Cthulhu twist on that.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing that should not be. And uh, we all have to, uh, you know, let the Goral and the Black Spiral dancers have their way. Because if it doesn't, something something much, much worse is going to happen.
2: Something that's kind of interesting you could also do, same with the original World of Darkness. You could actually use the Midnight Circus in each of the individual game lines if you wanted. It'd make a really, really good sort of a group concept for Prometheans because they constantly have to travel. They can't stay in one place too long and it also explains because uh, we didn't really cover it too much but the the circus has this draining effect both spiritually and physically on the land that it stays in All Right, um, so that
1: ties into the, the, the promethean wasting really nicely
2: you kind of covered mage a little bit already this could also be a sort of traveling troop of uh, geists maybe something in the carnival So anytime somebody in the area of the carnival dies, their spirit is kind of trapped in some kind of weird, maybe it has its own lands of the dead or its own kind of realm from Book of the Dead. And maybe the dice are attached to the carnival because they need to interact with and send the ghosts off to where they need to be or fix them if too many ghosts being attached to the carnival, if too many of them build up, maybe something happens and they need to make sure they kind of mitigate that. Keeping the ones around that need to be there and then sending the others away. However, if they're um, angry and malevolent, they may have to fight them off. And if, if they're just lost, maybe they have to escort them to the true path.
1: Yeah, well, the whole crew element is, is, is you know front and center in, in Geist, so I think that's that's a pretty easy easy match. And just touching briefly again on what you said about Promethean, I mean, the, the book has husk, but he he was created by one of the characters in the circus. So that would be a a good way to have a good hook for your Promethean Chronicle, that you start off where all the Prometheans are actually entities who were made in the circus, and they travel around with it, uh, and as as part of their their personal journey toward humanity, getting away from the circus uh, is is something that they need to do. Um, But by the same token, the circus is, is, um, is home to them and it protects them and it nurtures them. So you have a really, you could have a really quite a poignant story of, of getting yourself free from this almost abusive home that you're part of in order to find who you really are. But in the same time, you're leaving safety behind. This, this one thing that is that is so horrendous to be part of is actually also the one thing that is uh, that is keeping you safe and allowing you to travel around the place with some degree of anonymity.
2: Another kind of interesting take I just thought of, this could actually be a really interesting kind of finale for a an individual Promethean, at least, with Husk. Maybe they're on the last kind of step to regaining their humanity, and the last thing that they need to do is find Husk, who is not complete yet, and pass mm. on that sacred fire to him before they themselves can become mortal,
1: that's nice, and that would force them to go into this place. That's you know, that is as, as we mentioned earlier on, is really a place that you you don't really want to go. And just uh, you know, uh, as I mentioned before, we are, we haven't had a very close look at second edition of uh, of We Were the Forsaken, um, but one of the things that was very strong in its in its early iterations was the uh, aspect that the um, uh, that the Uratha are policing uh, yeah. the barriers between the mortal and the spiritual world. So. Having the circus like this come to town is going to wreak all sorts of havoc um, in Twilight and all sorts of havoc in the spirit world. So this gives, um, gives Will's characters an immediate hook um, to get themselves stuck in and uh, start putting
2: things to rights. Or it could also be something that uh, perhaps for whatever reason, all the, the spirits they can't deal with, they're too strong or they're too prevalent. They just can't get rid of them. Maybe the circus is something they can kind of pawn the spirits off to.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah, sell them to Cavendish.
2: Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so you've already kind of co- uh, talked about Mage a little. We kind of covered Changeling as well. It could be uh, secondarily for Changeling. It could be some kind of mobile goblin market if you change the flavor. Yeah. Or kind of similar to a wraith. It could possibly be like a waystation inside the hedge. Something like a mm-hmm. last ditch effort if one of the characters is just getting too far, too far lost. They could come across this place as like okay this is your last chance before your character you know becomes non-playable
1: yeah 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 yeah. i um, think we haven't we haven't touched on, on requiem you know and i think uh, of, of the various games at least in uh, in what the characters do um vampire the requiem is closest still probably to vampire the masquerade but one thing that uh second edition requiem has has, has raised the profile of is the strix um, so, for example, replacing uh, Apophis or replacing uh, the Defiler Worm with uh, with the activities of the Strix gives you uh, a way to involve your Requiem characters on a level that's much more personally threatening um, than the wow. carnival currently probably is.
2: That's interesting. It didn't even didn't even dawn on me. But yeah, that's, that's definitely a way you could go with uh, Requiem. You could also, if the characters are members of the circus, you could really play up the idea of how, because they travel from from place to place all across the globe. Um, You could play off the idea that each time that they go to a new location, depending on who holds power in that place, they need to either augment their show or, Mm. um, and make sure that they get permission to enter before they actually go into that domain. So, the pol- political side of that could be pretty interesting. I don't know how long it would go, but along the way, you know, because they would have to, they would be forced to interact with, on a personal level, all of the different clans and bloodlines, but also the different covenants. How are they going to present yeah. themselves if they're going into a domain that's controlled by the Invictus versus the, you know, Lincae Sanctum? What sort of trade are they going to have to make if they want to go into uh, an area that's controlled by the Order Dracul? Right. And what,
1: what, what is the circle of the of the Crone going to make of the fortune tellers, for example? Yeah, yeah that'd,
2: that'd be nice. Um, and yeah. something that they oh. kind of they highlighted a little bit in the book in regards to how they act, how the vampires react when between going to a Camarilla city and a Sabbat. But in Requiem, there's at least five different groups that they need to kind of tailor their their uh, demeanor and and their their show towards
1: yeah absolutely i think one thing that's that's easy whether it's old world of darkness or new is running it as a mortals game um and i think you wouldn't have to change you know some of the stuff we mentioned earlier on about uh, adrian you mentioned like uh the inquisition and i touched on the whole of the arcanum and um the uh Oh, God, my brain's just gone dead. <laughs> Project,
0: Project
1: Twilight. Project, sorry, thank you. I mentioned uh, uh, Paul of the Arcanum and Project Twilight. With uh, With Hunter the Vigil, for example, um, you have any number of uh, aspects in that game that you can tailor in, in, in the same way. And if you're running blue book games from just the core World of Darkness kind of books, uh, you wouldn't have to change things in any great way to allow yourself to take advantage of the same setting elements there, you know, the, um, the history, the, the, the newspaper clippings, the, the forgotten law, etc., etc. That's easily applicable, I think, to both iterations of the, of the world of darkness.
2: There's something kind of unique to the new world of darkness that I just thought of that could be really, really, really interesting. New world of darkness, innocence.
1: Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that ties directly in with, uh, something wicked this way comes because, you know, the, the, protagonists of that story are children who are lured into this 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 horrendous circus environment
2: yeah that'd be great and also the way that you can present all the all the different horrors in the circus would be a little bit different you know you're you're explaining it to a child so what do they they may not know what like mockery one individual is making in their show they just see the actual horror from a child's perspective
1: one thing i didn't mention earlier on was um Certainly if you're looking at, you know, the, the true face of, of the circus is um, the, the, the tub of flesh character. His aspect in the dreaming is he's like, you know, three stories tall <laughs> as opposed to his normal height. <laughs> I want to find a way to get that in there somehow. I'm not quite sure how. But uh, yeah, the, the, the child being able to see um, the, uh, the spiritual face of this, of this already physically monstrous being. would uh, <laughs> it's, a scene, it's a scene worth doing, I think.
0: Is any of that kind of uh, sparking ideas for you? Yeah, certainly, certainly. I mean, like I said, I've, I've got a cursory overview of the New World of Darkness. I'm, I'm moderately familiar with the core books for the first edition, at least, of, of most of the games. And uh, really, everything that you've said here so far, I think, is, is really sound fodder that shows that the transferability of this book is the value, that we have managed to come up with a way that... Not only can this book be applied to both classic and New World of Darkness, but we've also shown how it can actually apply to every single game line in both of them. So its versatility alone is reason to pick it up and at least peruse it. And I think on that note, we're going to start to draw the episode to a close. If you'd like to contact us at Darker Days Radio, well, we have a we have a Gmail address first of all, and that address mark is DarkerDaysRadio at Gmail
1: dot com.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent! It's good to have you back. Also. <laughs> Also, you can drop by the Facebook community and also Darker Days Radio on G+. You'll find links to all of those in the show notes as well as links to some of the products that we've discussed this evening. So it's been an epic trip through crossovers and across the Midnight Circus, but I hope that you've stuck with us, our listeners, and that you have managed to get some brilliant ideas for your own chronicles. As I mentioned before, If you have got any ideas on how to make crossovers work, whether they be for the old or for the new world of darkness, or if you've got any particularly interesting crossover stories, you can certainly drop us a line or visit the G Plus community or the Facebook site. But without further ado, I think that it is time for the Midnight Circus to draw in the net of glamour and to vanish without trace. Until it pops up somewhere unexpected, maybe next month. This is Adrian signing off.
2: And this is Darker Days Beckett saying good evening. And this is Mark. Take it easy, guys.